Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. If you've got your Bibles, hopefully you're there. Acts 19, we're going to dive into our text uh, in, 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 just, in just a moment. Um, we're, we're talking about the gospel, gospel effects uh, on idolatry. And so as we, as we look at verses 21 through 23, as, as Paul's continuing his ministry in Ephesus, as you look at verses 21 through 23, our, our first point, the first point I want to make this morning is the gospel disturbs belief systems. Amen? The gospel disturbs belief systems. I want you to look at your neighbor, tell them the gospel disturbs. Look at your other, you look at your other neighbor, tell them the gospel disturbs. See, and, and I just read it a moment ago, but verse, verses 21 and 22, it gives us a snapshot of Paul's plans and what is to come in the remainder of the book of Acts. Again, the blueprint of Acts 1-8 is, is continuing to unfold, but Paul's plan was, was actually to, uh, at least for a bit, return back to Jerusalem. Historically, we know that, that we see it here. Uh, Paul was sending Timothy and, and Erasmus back to the Gentile churches. We see this in 1 Corinthians 16. We see this in Romans 15, 25 through 28. But he was sending them back to the Gentile churches to collect funds for the persecuted and impoverished Jerusalem church. Later, we're going to see that Paul would actually deliver those gifts to the brothers in Judea. But ultimately, what's happening here is much like you get to the end of the Gospels and Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem because he's, he knows he's headed to the cross, right? Paul, Paul here, we see his resolve. We see his resolve in the spirit to get to Rome, not as a tourist, right? but as a herald of the gospel. And so Paul sets his face towards Rome and eventually he will arrive in Rome uh, through much trial and tribulation and, and probably didn't get there in the way that he was anticipating getting there. But as you look at verse 23, church family, look at verse 23 and know that verse 23 comes on the heels of two and a half years of the gospel message and the ministry of Paul saturating the city of Ephesus. And it tells us that there arose, I love when the Bible says it like this, no little disturbance, right? <laughs> right? Like, like, man, you know, we, we had no little argument. Man, that was a big argument, okay? Uh, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, the, the, this Greek word tarakos, it, it means disturbance or commo commotion. 
And you say, well, what was, what was the commotion? What was stirring up the city? Uh, the text just tells us it was the way. It's this Greek word, hados, and it means the way, the road, or the path. And so the way at this point was this just kind of overall uh, descriptive term for the entire Christian way of life, but especially the means of salvation through Jesus alone. And, but but here, here's the rub. I, I want to read from 2 Corinthians. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. He said this. Paul said, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. See, church family, the gospel by definition is, is the good news. Amen? It's, it's the good news. But it's not, it's not good news. Hear me. It's not good news to those who don't think that their sin is a problem. It's not good news to those who would rather choose sin and death than submit to a sovereign God. And so the, the gospel... Check this out. The gospel disturbs because by nature the gospel exposes, explains, exalts, but it also excludes. Let me, let me say this again. The, the gospel, the gospel uh, disturbs because by nature the, the gospel exposes, it explains, it exalts, but it also excludes. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. The gospel exposes our sinful condition, and then explains God's solution by exalting the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? However, in doing so, check this out, it excludes all other means of salvation apart from Christ. Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so while the gospel is for anyone and everyone, it's, it's not an inclusive message uh, to be incorporated into previous systems of belief and idolatry. It is, it is an exclusive message that demands our total surrender to God's revealed way. And so because of this, inevitably, wherever, wherever Paul went and wherever Paul preached, Tony, Evan, uh, Tony Evans says it like this. Two things would regularly happen. Tony Evans says people got saved and people got mad. <laughs> I like that. I had this conversation in our, our, our small group, actually just this past Tuesday uh, in our MCG. I, I shared with them that uh, when, when my best friend Curtis, when he went overseas uh, to Southeast Asia to share the gospel as a missionary uh, almost two decades ago at this point, uh, his, his greatest, really one of his greatest struggles was the religious syncretism of the people. And, I, and, and what do I mean by that? Curtis would, Curtis would share the gospel, and the person in front of him would say, yes, I believe. Like, I, yes, I, I believe in Jesus. But, but Kurt soon learned what that meant. It meant that they, they believed Jesus, they believed the story of Jesus, and they planned on adding him to their spiritual smorgasbord, to their, to their belief buffet, right? It's like, yeah, we'll add that in. 
And they, they weren't forsaking their idols. They weren't forsaking their gods. They were simply trying to squeeze Jesus into the mix, not as, not as the one true God, but as the new God on the block. But the biblical gospel demands that we, we see Jesus, as C.S. Lewis said, he, he's either liar, lunatic, or he's Lord. And he didn't leave us the option of, of assimilating uh, him into our other idols and gods. And, and so we, we see this, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus, the word was God. Titus 2.13, Jesus is not just Savior, he's God. Colossians 2.9, Jesus is deity, he is God in human flesh. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Jesus is is God. And yes, though it might be easier to tell people uh, that there are many paths to God, the Bible is clear that God has revealed himself in the person of his son. Amen? Scripture is clear. You say, well, so what is the application? Church, here, here's, here's some, let me drop some application here. There there is no version of the gospel, there's no version of the gospel that is not unsettling, okay? There's no version of the gospel that's not unsettling uh, because the, the truth of Jesus confronts our idols. The truth of Jesus confronts our sin. The gospel, like, the gospel confronts our depravity. It also, it also confronts our insufficiency. Can it, can I, can I just tell you something, and, 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 I, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating, uh, false gospel equals you are enough. False gospel equals you are enough. You're not enough. That's, that's why you need Jesus. That's why I need Jesus. And, it, and it's not until you have Jesus that you're enough. And even then, it's only because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the gospel is disturbing because it's exposing our true condition. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And so any, any version, listen, any version of the gospel that doesn't demand that you rightly understand your sin as offensive to God and as something that separates you from God, man, it's a false gospel. You cannot, you cannot possibly comprehend the depth of God's infinite, marvelous grace until you understand the depth of your depravity and the consequences for falling short of God's image and God's glory. And so the gospel just, it just kind of disrupts all of these humanistic belief systems that we're, that we are enough, that it's, we, we can do it and we've got the good works and we can kind of work our way to God and all the achievement and all the things. Listen, the gospel comes in and disturbs all of that. But I will say this, it's only the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Amen. Romans 1.16, it's only the gospel. Only the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen. Second thing, second thing that happens, the, the, how the gospel disrupts our idols 
or, or how the gospel comes in uh, and, and really wreaks havoc on, on our uh, on our world and on our culture um, and, and, and has these effects on our idolatry is the gospel disrupts and drives work and wealth. The gospel disrupts and drives work and wealth. Uh, I, I want you to look at your neighbor and tell them the gospel disrupts and drives. <laughs> the gospel disrupts and drives. So one more time. We're going to get in sync this morning. That's my fault. <laughs> As we look at verse 24 through 26, verse 24 introduces us to old Demetrius, right? Uh, and, 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 and old D was a, was a silversmith. Um, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with uh, us being a silversmith by trade. The problem, the problem was not in his work. The problem was in how his work was connected to idolatry and how it fueled the economy of, of a culture that was consumed with idol worship. There, the, the culture of Ephesus was consumed with idol worship. And so Demetrius, listen, Demetrius wasn't making silverware, right? Uh, he wasn't making like jewelry and necklaces. He wasn't, he wasn't making uh, bracelets. He was fashioning silver shrines of this Greek goddess Artemis. And, and furthermore, he was part of this elaborate system of craftsmen who had come to make their, they, they come to make their living off of idolatry. And so while we see in verse 24 through 26, we see his plea was kind of couched carefully in this like pious language about how much they revered Artemis. Don't get it twisted. Like this dude wanted to make some cash, right? He, he wanted to make money. He wanted to get paid. And it's a reminder. It's a scary place to be when idolatry fuels your pockets and is the primary source of your income. It's a scary place to be. Verse 25, as we look at verse 25, so, so he gets together his little, his little craftsman's uh, guild and he stages a demonstration to show how uh, he feels about the gospel disrupting the, the, his, their, their work and their wealth. And, and, and I want to drop a, a little bit of background here. I know we've, we've touched on it a little bit in, in pre, the, the, the last two messages, but it's important to understand to have the right perspective of the scope of the Artemis cult. This, this wasn't, the, the, the people who were worshiping Artemis at this time, this wasn't like your backwoods, snake handling, poison drinking, like small cult, right? Uh, Pausanias, who wrote in the, the middle of the second century AD, he said this, he, he claimed that the Artemis cult was the most widely followed cult in the ancient world. Biggest one. Daryl Box says she was worshipped in many cities and locales since we know of there were 33 shrines to Artemis. But the major side of her worship, Box says, was in Asia Minor, uh, was in Asia Minor at, at Ephesus. The temple of Artemis could hold up to 25,000 people. 25,000 people. Many believe, again, it was the largest Greek temple ever built. 460 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, held up by 127 ornate columns. 
Now, Artemis was, was known as Diana to the Romans. She was the Greek goddess of fertility, uh, but also of the hunt. And so she was also, church family, she was also big business. She was big business as people would come in, pilgrims would come in from all over the known world to worship, and they would purchase these little mini replicas, not only of the goddess, but also of the temple itself. Believing that if they if they worship these little trinkets, that that, that uh, Artemis or Diana would bless them and prosper them and heal them, and because of this, D.L. Moody says that the temple also functioned as a bank. They're like, man, there's lots of money coming in here. Let's just set up an ATM. Let's get a you know, let's get a little uh, a little Ephesian National Bank action happening, and so. This idolatrous treasure trove, uh, historically, they say, stored a substantial portion of, of the wealth of Western Asia. And so it's important to know all that because that's where the, Paul was doing work. That's where the gospel was going in. In church, the gospel was at work. The gospel was at work. The good news of Jesus was saving and changing people's lives. But Demetrius couldn't see past his work and his wealth. Demetrius could not see past his work and wealth to the truth of Jesus. All he thought, all he saw was the threat to his career and his cash. That's all he saw. Here's the application, right? You say, what's the takeaway? Church, it was was Calvin who, who, who said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's Calvin who said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. See, there's there's a reason that the the first commandment in Exodus 20 tells us, "You, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Christian, maybe, maybe your work and your wealth, uh, maybe, maybe the, that those aren't your idols, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe they are. Listen, wealth is not intrinsically good or bad. It's just a, it's just a tool to be used, amen? It's a tool to be stewarded for God's glory, not, not just your gain. Your work, too. Listen, your work, it's something that is to be leveraged for the advancement of the gospel and for the, the, the sake of God's coming kingdom. And so, so the question becomes, do others see the imprint of Jesus on your work and wealth? Let me say that again. Do others see the imprint of Jesus on your work and wealth. Uh, this one's for free, Christian. If you, can't, if you can't give your money away for the sake of the gospel, then it's your wealth that controls your heart, not your Savior. Now, I want to close this point with, with, with a, a warning but, but, and, and also an illustration. See, cultural Christianity is a, it's a funny thing. Cultural Christianity is a funny thing. It, it allows us to cling to the practices and patterns around us while selectively applying the parts of God's word that don't call for the obliteration of our idols. I hear, I hear so, so many talk about getting back to the old days, right? Getting, getting back to the old days when the American church was great and, and when prayer was in schools and, and when we, the Ten Commandments were in the classroom and taught. And listen, like, 
don't get me, don't get it twisted. I, I, I would love to see more prayer in school right now. Like I'd love to see like God's word having a, a place and a foothold in, 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 in schools with all of our nation's woes. But listen, I, I also recognize with, with this sentiment of getting back uh, that for hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, the American church was reading the same Bible that we were reading, okay? Granted, maybe, maybe the King James Version, okay? And yet they, they looked the other way on enslaving fellow image bearers. Because they knew, they knew the economic impact it would have on their lands and on their businesses and on their wealth. And for too long, the American church was driven practically by dollars and not by doctrine. So praise God, we, we've, we've come a long way, but it's a sobering reminder to examine your desires and your ideology and your living. And, and I'll just say this, does the gospel have full permission to rearrange your entire priority and value system? Can the gospel rearrange your priorities and values or is Jesus just the garnishment on your plate of idolatry? Is Jesus just the garnishment on your plate of idolatry? Maybe he's on the plate, but it's all for show. Third thing is this this morning as we look at verse 20, 26 through 28, the gospel dethrones all lesser gods. The gospel dethrones all lesser gods. I want you to look at your neighbor. Tell we're going to get it together, okay? Look at your neighbor. Tell them the gospel dethrones. That was solid. That was solid. Look at your other neighbor. Tell them the gospel dethrones. Steph and I, a, a, a while back, we we got we got into the next Netflix series, Lost in Space, uh, and now the twins. How many how many more episodes y'all got? Two. All right. Y'all want to watch them after spring break? No. Okay. I'm just messing with you. Um, the twins are finishing it up. Spoiler alert. Boy befriends robot alien. Okay. <laughs> but what's interesting is that uh, robot named robot, super original, uh, has this sixth sense when, when Will is in trouble. Uh, and in his robot voice, he'll, he'll what does he say? Yes, he says, danger, Will Robinson. Danger, Will Robinson. He knew when they were in danger, right? I, I love, like, as you look at verse 26 through 28, verse 26 spells out the issue clearly, and it reminds us, it actually reminds us of an earlier message by Paul in Athens, where in Acts 17, 24 through 25, Paul rolled up in Athens, and he told the Athenians, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, in verse 27 through 28, Demetrius comes to his final conclusion. <laughs> his job was in danger, right? The glory of the goddess Artemis was in danger, right? It's like, danger. What if, what if, Demetrius is thinking, what if the people of Ephesus woke up and they recognized a, a, a statue was simply a statue and not divine? 
What if, what if, what if, what if the, 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 the worship of the people had been misinformed and misdirected this whole time? What if Artemis was, was going to be deposed, right? In the, the Greek, this word katareo, it means torn down or brought down. What if Artemis was deposed of her magnificence? What if, what if her, her grandeur and her majesty had just been a facade all this time? And so naturally, they, they did what many, many people do today when they're like losing an argument or, or they realize they're, they're losing control, losing their, their handle on a situation. They just got louder, right? <laughs> they, they, they just started, they started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And yet, even in their chanting, you just kind of feel their desperation, right? You feel the desperation growing. And in their spiritual blindness, somehow they missed what should have been obvious. Derek Thomas says it like this. If one, if one had the power to create a God with one's own hands, it could hardly be a God. How could the thing that is created be a God of the one who created it? See, the gospel, Derek Thomas says, the gospel challenges idolatry in all its forms. And ultimately, church family, God doesn't coexist with our idols. He wipes them out. Ultimately, God doesn't, he doesn't coexist with our idols. He, he will wipe them out. Think about it. Kent Hughes says this, the epicenter of Artemis worship was a black meteorite that either resembled or had been fashioned into a grotesque image of a woman. So, so to put things in perspective, the people were worshiping a rock. The people were worshiping a rock. But idolatry was all they knew, right? So everybody else is worshiping the rock. Because of the culture, idolatry was all that they knew until Paul showed up and preached the gospel, amen? Till Paul showed up and he pointed them to Christ crucified in the place of sinners and raised victorious over sin and death. And so when the gospel came on the scene, when it comes on the scene, it endangers. It endangers the reputation and the renown of our idols and all of our little uh, lesser little G gods. And Christian, if Jesus is Lord, he will not stop until all of our idols are deposed and dethroned. Amen. I'll close with this this morning. Let's pull up our picture. Y'all ready? Let's pull this. Let's, can, we, can we go back to the picture? Sorry. There we go. Uh, let me tell you what you're looking at. Church family, this is, this is what's left over of the temple of Artemis. That's it. One, one column, and that's not even the full 60 feet, right? One, one column. 460 foot, 220 foot length, 60 feet tall, 127 columns. This place that held 25,000 worshipers of Artemis, that's all we got. We got a little boulder, a little stack of, of rubble, and, and, and one uh, dilapidated looking column. This is what's left over the temple of Artemis. This, this, this was one of the seven great wonders of the world. Pretty wonderful, right? Not really. Didn't stand, it didn't stand up to the 2,000 year test 
uh, let alone the test of eternity, amen? This idol that was so prevalent in their day, this idol that people prayed to, this, this idol uh, that, that people participated in sexual immorality for, they, this idol that they, they purchased little silver replicas and trinkets of, it's now just a heap of old rocks. And so, and so let it be a warning to us, church, Christian, like, Christian, what have you sold out for? Christian, what have you sold out for? What are you, what are you pouring yourself into right now that ultimately will not last? And what are you trying to assimilate Jesus into instead of recognizing that he wants all of you? And as you examine your life and what, like, what, what idols seem so important to you now that one day they will lie in ruins having failed the test of eternity. See, in 1834, it was Edward Moat Edward who wrote in his famous hymn the words, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is is sinking sand. Church, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we, do we believe that Jesus is the only solid rock? No pun intended to Artemis. Maybe a little pun. Do we believe his supremacy over all other gods? Do we believe that his, his, wrong, his throne and his rule and his dominion are eternal? Are, are we willing to look at all other ideas and all, all of our stuff and all of our wealth and our security and our comfort and our, and our work and our achievements and say, man, Jesus is better. Amen? Jesus is better and Jesus is Lord. Can we say that? I mean, for the sake of the world and for the sake of our witness and church, I hope that we can. Y'all pray with me this morning.